If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. If there is a moment uh, in the New Testament that a rhetorician just has to love, it's got to be Luke 4 and the story of the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. For one thing, human beings love to know how things got started or in this case, how Jesus launched his career, brief and tragic though it was. Or to put it in modern political terms, how did Jesus announce that he was running for Messiah? <laughs> how did he launch? We have a lot of Democrats, Democrats who are lining up to launch their campaigns these days. I think 315 at last count. <laughs> It may be the largest field ever assembled to vie for the job of trying to put the country, not to mention democracy, not to mention the rule of law, back together again. Humpty Dumpty is about to fall off the wall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men won't be able to put Humpty back together again. I have a theory, which is completely unscientific and supported by no actual evidence, which would make me a good politician, that when a, (laughs) that when a, oh, I should not, I shouldn't do this, that when a president is about to fail in a particularly spectacular way, the number of people who line up to replace him grows exponentially and accordingly. After all, 
one is being given a chance here to shine brilliantly by comparison, in this case just by telling the truth most of the time and acting like an adult. In the case of Jesus and his first hometown sermon, the story is not just beautifully told but prophetic. It is only fair to say, of course, that some scholars think this never happened. That is, that it's Luke's fiction and not history we're dealing with. That bothers some people more than other people, but we're all products of the Enlightenment, and we tend to believe that which is verifiable and dismiss that which is imagined, even when it's imagined on purpose. When you think about it, of course, this leaves out some amazingly true stories like Huck Finn. The gospel writers were not stenographers. They didn't follow Jesus around taking notes to chronicle his life. They practiced literary license decades after the fact. Not unlike our mythical accounts of George Washington, did he chop down a cherry tree and tell the truth about it or lie, or Abraham Lincoln walking six miles to return a three-cent overcharge to a customer, no doubt in blizzard conditions, which is how I always walk to school. <laughs> the question is not whether Washington ever really chopped down a cherry tree, but was he the father of our country? It's not whether we have a Lincoln penny because of Abe's honesty, but because the president got up one day and said to millions of slaves, you are free. In the Bible, we're never sure if the story happened exactly this way, but we want to know something much more important, namely, is it true? After all, Jesus had to get started somewhere, sometime, and you can't write a story of his life and not have the announcement, the coming out, the memory of the local boy whose decision to no longer remain anonymous ended one morning, and people have been talking about it ever since. It did not end well. So that makes how it began an object of fascination, or for the writer of Luke's gospel, a way of trying to explain why he really was the Messiah. To set this scene in the rhythms of the church calendar, that is, during Epiphany, we have been singing the essential question, what child is this? And Luke fairly shouts the answer back at us. Luke says, the boy grew in wisdom and stature, which is how you talked in those days about a lad that God had God's eye on. The angel Gabriel had told Mary in the first place, of course, and so against great odds, she let it be. Taking refuge with her amazing cousin Elizabeth and Elizabeth's radical hospitality. I agree with Lori that Elizabeth should be the patron saint of the UCC. And then, of course, there were the angels and the shepherds and whoever else is included in that large-sounding group known as the heavenly host. In Matthew, there are wise men and their impractical gifts. And in Luke, there's an old man named Simeon whose cloudy eyes finally see the promised one. But he warns Mary it will be painful. And don't forget the 84-year-old prophetess, Anna, who lives in the temple. Apparently, she's there all the time and took one look at the baby Jesus and then told all her friends, he's the one. What child is this? Duh. So by the time we get to today's installment of the answer to the question, what child is this, Jesus is all grown up and comes back home to 
bring the message in his local morning service. That's what we called it when I was a boy in the Church of Christ, bringing the message. When I turned 18, someone actually said to me once in my father's church, Robin, will you bring us the message today? Assuming, I guess, that I was now old enough to have something coherent to say. And I said, nope. <laughs> nope, M my dad does that. I'm guessing that Jesus does not have quite that same relationship with his father, whoever his father was. I say that because some scholars think Joseph is also a literary invention brought in to stand awkwardly next to Mary at, beside the creche and give her a male protector, not to mention legitimacy in a patriarchal society. But I digress, or maybe not. Perhaps what Jesus has done is to adopt a heavenly father to replace an absent earthly one whom he calls by the rather remarkable and intimate name Abba, or in English, Daddy. Now, we will never know the details, but I'm guessing Jesus was a strange and withdrawn teenager, wandering off and getting lost in Jerusalem once and worrying his mother sick. I mean, he was not doing anything normal, of course, like playing video games. No, he's holding forth in the temple and giving the teachers a run for their money. Luke says that Jesus was the one asking all the questions and then answering them. And when mama finds him, she lets him have it. You have worried us sick. And he responds in a way no 12-year-old would ever respond, claiming that he is home in his father's house. Which, just saying, confirms my theory of the substitute father. But I regress again digress again. I may regress too. <laughs> now, the scene before us is my favorite. I call it Jesus Tries Preaching Part One. According to Luke, the word is out that there's a remarkable young teacher in town, straight-A student, teller of parables. Luke says he started teaching in the synagogues and was, listen closely, praised by everyone. Uh-oh. There is no curse in ministry that compares to being praised by everyone. Plans may already be in the works to build the family, Jesus Family Life Center on prime real estate in the suburbs. The Jerusalem Post has a reporter sitting in the back getting the scoop for the morning paper and someone has ordered that rock star microphone and some black tennis shoes for Jesus advising him to wear his shirt untucked and there will be a blog of course entitled Messiah's My Name he comes to Nazareth, his hometown, where, unlike Garth Brooks, he does not have his name on a water tower, but people are talking about him. He's been out in the desert doing something. Nobody's sure exactly what, getting his priorities straight, I guess, but there's a buzz in town. And maybe some people hope Jesus will be the one to finally put this little backwater town on the map. Times are not good. There has been, after all, one crackpot Gentile ruler after another. The Persians, the Greeks, now the Romans. So, remember, please, everything we read in the New Testament, including this moment, must be read through the lens of occupation, of empire. 
of the longing of people everywhere to be free of the foreign occupiers that they hate. We don't get this because we've never been occupied. There are no foreign soldiers standing just outside this sanctuary. What if you looked through the window there out into the columbarium and there were soldiers, foreign soldiers, looking at us lest we insult Caesar in the pulpit. And this is good because we insult Caesar in this pulpit about every week. <laughs> you see, in those days, every morning, people got up, looked out the window, and there they were, the shadows of seven swords cast across the ground of the promised land coming all the way from the seven hills of Rome. Or to put it in the illustrious words of Buffalo Springfield, Paranoia strikes deep. Into your life it will creep. It starts when you're always afraid. You step out of line, and the man comes and takes you away. Meanwhile, back at church, I think Jesus was a balcony sitter. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's where all the weird people are. Because they want to be in church, but not, not too close. He's up there scribbling on a bulletin as the rabbis drone on. Suddenly, here's an announcement from one of the graybeards leading worship. And now, one of our most promising young people, a woodworker by trade, but who may be answering a higher calling. My friends, please welcome to the reading of the scroll, our local luminary, Yeshua Bar Yosef. His friends, we call him JJ. And Jesus puts down his bulletin up there and stands up and then, of course, disappears for a moment because he has to come down the stairs. And he pauses at the new door and looks out on the garden where we bury our dead. And maybe he thinks about how things just never change. And then he appears at the doorway back there and starts walking slowly up the center aisle. He has handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, Israel's greatest prophet. Notice he does not choose the scroll the scroll chooses him. He stands up to read, as was the custom in those days, just as it is to this day in some churches that all rise when the gospel is read. I wonder, I really wonder what that moment was like. Because so many times in my life, I've stepped up to a microphone and wondered, what am I going to say? Wondered, what do people need to hear? Wondered if I should have worked harder on this damn sermon, but never, ever has anyone given me something to read. I like to be in control. I'll pick my own text. Thank you very much. That's not what's happening here. And I never thought about this before. You know, that's, some, that's the advantage of preaching even after you're old. You keep seeing new things. He reads what has been given to him to read. And then something happens, something that changes human history. And I know these are just words, 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 words. And people were probably nodding off. And a child was probably crying. And a dove may have rustled by the window and settled on a branch, cooing. Nine people probably coughed at the same time or cleared their throats or blew their noses because it was cold season and there was no Sudafed in those days. And then it got really quiet. 
Jesus unrolls the scroll that has been handed to him. This is so full of action verbs. Now, sometimes an assistant would help hold it open so it doesn't roll back up and use a pointer to help the reader keep his eye on the text. It says that Jesus found the place where it was written, but I wonder if really the place where it was written did not find him. So would you do me a favor? Just close your eyes for a moment while I read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, open your eyes and tell me, did the hair stand up on the back of your neck? Because the hair is still standing up on the back of mine. Just words. Sure, I mean, sure, just words, but when a jury foreman reads the verdict, guilty or not guilty, those are just words. When a nervous couple stands at the altar and one says, I do, and the other says, I do, those are just words, four words, but a whole new institution is added to society. When a traumatized nation scoots up close to their radios on December 7, 1941, to hear the president deliver the bad news, Roosevelt says of the attack on Pearl Harbor that it was, quote, a date which will live in infamy. Just words, just vibration of air over eardrums, but if you will forgive my lifelong obsession with the spoken word, it can change the world. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Action verbs. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing Really, there goes the hair on the back of my neck again. And now it gets really quiet. I imagine that at that moment, there was a sort of a stir in the audience, what preachers call the nervous shift. That's what happens when people don't really like what you just said, or are not quite sure they heard it right, but if they did, they don't like it. And so they shift in the pews. No doubt, an old person leaned over and said to his friend, what did he say? <laughs> he said he's the Messiah. Oh, my. I was hoping that he said, I think it's going to rain. Well, that's very strange, and perhaps we misunderstood him, but let's focus on the positive, and my, what, what a fine public speaker he is. So in the line after church, I can imagine this conversation. Mary, you must be proud. He's always been a chatty type, hasn't he? Did you give him voice lessons or does he come by this naturally? But you know what they're really thinking that nobody is saying, I know the name of a good therapist. He specializes in the Messiah complex. You see, as long as Jesus is just speaking strangely but not acting strangely, talking the talk, but not walking the walk. He's safe. 
There's a lot of talking that goes on in church, but often when action is called for, someone will always advise that we not rush into anything, but perhaps study the matter further. We'll table it for now and again and again and again and again, produce a report, file it, and then think we've done something. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said that this is the real chasm between the life of faith and merely describing the life of faith. It's the difference between concept and capacity. We know the concept Messiah, but we strongly advise against you actually thinking you are the Messiah and then acting like it. That's capacity. That's when the trouble begins. So whatever you have to do, Jesus, to get this out of your system, please do so. Write a book about the Messiah, Jesus. Give it a catchy title, but don't start organizing the poor or healing the uninsured sick or asking the rich to pay more. Don't soak the rich or turning over the tables in our fellowship hall. Those tables were donated by a very nice woman. And at the very least, they're going to fire you. At worst, they might kill you and you are one fine public speaker. So if you studied your bulletin carefully, you saw that this is the first of a two-part sermon. Concept versus capacity one, well said. Next Sunday is Jesus tries preaching part two, or concept versus capacity two, how dare you? Because in those days, after you stood to read the scroll, you sat down to interpret it. And Jesus could have just said, here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. And then someone dims the lights and the real trouble begins. So if he had just finished reading and done this, turned on the lights and then said, and for our last hymn, please turn to number so-and-so. Everything would have ended differently. But then again, if he had done that, we would not be here. Stay tuned. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.